Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 7. Our text this morning will be John chapter 7, verses 37 through 44. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that we have entered into the section of John's gospel where the opposition against Jesus, both from the Jews and from the crowds, is rising. I also want to remind you that Jesus at this point has made his way up to the temple around the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we remember that the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was a seven-day feast commemorating how God provided for the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. But by the first century, the feast was also associated with the eschatological or end-time hope for Israel, when the Jews expected that the nation would be restored to her promised glory. And the celebration of this feast culminated on the eighth day directly after the feast with a special festival, and that's where we find ourselves in this text this morning. At this point, the dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, along with the crowd, reaches its climax. So pay, so pay special attention to that in our verses this morning. I invite you now to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. John 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was born? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord of glory, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you and to hear from you through your word this morning. And Lord, it is our prayer that you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds and in our hearts such that we respond to the proclamation of your word with great joy, with great love, and with diligent obedience to and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to us this morning, Lord. Help us this morning, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher, and so teach us. We're dependent on you. Help us to realize that more and more. Help us to constantly and consistently humble ourselves before the Lord. And Lord, I pray 
that you would help each and every person who's listening to this sermon or who will listen to this sermon to come to Christ and to drink. Lord, that we might be satiated, that we might be satisfied, oh God, in nothing other than Christ. This is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I spent a portion of my research on this sermon looking up old Gatorade commercials. That's typically not something that I do. But if you were born in the 70s or the 80s, perhaps you were captivated by Michael Jordan like I was. I wanted to be like Mike, as the saying goes. And if you remember, if you watched TV back in those days, Michael Jordan appeared in Gatorade commercials. And Gatorade was known as the thirst quencher. As I was watching some of these commercials, it was funny to look back and hear the science of the day. How Gatorade promised to be restorative to the body unlike any other drink with all of their technological advances. I remember as a child, if I had the right pair of shoes and if I had a bottle of Gatorade, I would be unstoppable (laughs) on the basketball court. But the older I got, the more I realized that a right pair of shoes and a bottle of Gatorade would not make me unstoppable on the basketball court. Furthermore, I found out that Gatorade did not achieve the satisfaction that they have advertised. Yeah, good for a while. Yeah, replenishing for a moment. But it wasn't the ultimate thirst quencher. As a matter of fact, I can only find one thing to drink of, brothers and sisters, that satisfies as advertised which is what we just read of, the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, the main idea of this text and the main idea of this sermon is that Jesus is the sole provider and the only provision to quench your thirst forever. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning to you, hear that. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, He and He alone is the sole provider and only provision to quench your thirst forever. I like what Pastor Kevin says. Eternal means eternal. Forever. The fact is this, is that you are thirsty. You are. You are spiritually thirsty. You thirst for your creator, yet what is mankind prone to do? We are prone to drink of the things from this world, to drink of the creation rather than from your creator who can quench everlastingly your thirst. So my question to you this morning is what will you drink? In other words, will you trust in Christ alone? Will you drink of Christ alone for your eternal security and everlasting satisfaction? Will you receive him? Will you rest in him and thus be saved 
and be satisfied. Friend, will you be safe and secure and satiated in nothing other than Christ alone? This is what this passage is calling for you to do, and therefore this is what I am calling for you to do. The argument that Jesus is the sole provider and the only provision to quench your thirst forever can be observed in three scenes, which serves as our outline this morning. First, we're going to look at the shout of the Savior in verses 37 and 38. Then we're going to look at the sign of salvation in verse 39. And then we're going to look at the separation of skeptics in verses 40 through 44. So let us begin with scene one, the shout of the Savior. Verses 37 and 38 serve as the crux or the central point of our passage this morning. The following verse, verse uh, 39, will explain Jesus' shout, while verses 40 through 44 convey the aftermath or the result of Jesus' shout. And so first, what we want to do is look at the significance of the setting and then the significance of the shout in that order. Look with me at verse 37a, the first part of verse 37. This is the significance of the setting. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. And we're going to pause right there because we have to understand what is going on here. The last day of the feast feast was known as the great day. It was the eighth day, as I've already mentioned. And this was the climactic day, which concluded the previous seven-day Feast of Tabernacles with this special festival. Everyone in attendance would have known and understood that this was the highest day of celebration for the whole feast. And this great day was made up of many symbolic components. One of those components is essential for us to understand and to rightly identify the significance of Jesus' shout. And that component is known as the ritual of the water drawing ceremony the ritual of the water-drawing ceremony. The water-drawing ceremony included a procession, a, a procession of the people and the priest from the Pool of Siloam to the temple. So the Pool of Siloam is south of the temple, and they would have this procession, and they would march up to the temple. And afterward, they would reach the temple. The priest would pour out both water and wine at the base of the altar. This ceremony was not only associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, but it was also associated with the provision and the security of rain because the Feast of Tabernacles came directly before the rainy season in Israel. And so what's going on here is this water-drawing ceremony expressed the dependence on the divine provision of rain, which of course is essential to life. But by the first century, It seems that some Jewish traditions and teachers superstitiously made the provision of rain dependent on the feast and its festivities. As a matter of fact, it's even plausible that this water-drawing ceremony was viewed as the primary means for God to bless the nation with rain. And you and I look back and say, well, that's absolute foolishness. We would disagree that God must be prompted to provide rain. Nevertheless, this was a common view surrounding the feast and the water-drawing ceremony in Jesus' day. This background is overwhelmingly helpful for us to, to, to more fully grasp the weightiness of what Jesus said. 
The significance of the setting now leads us to the significance of the shout, and so we'll continue in verse 37. It says that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I love what John does here for us. John not only provides us with the words that Jesus spoke, but he also provides us with the manner in which Jesus spoke them. Note the intentional actions of Jesus. It says that he stood up and cried out. This massive festival is going on, and you know what Jesus isn't doing? He's not whispering in a corner to a select few. He stood up making sure that he was visible to all, and he cried out. The verb translated cried out is a very intense verb in the Greek. I've called it a shout, but it can even be translated more intensely, such as a scream or a shriek. The point is that Jesus is verbally and vehemently communicating in a loud voice in the midst of a loud festival with many voices and with many instruments, Here, Jesus' manner of communication takes center stage. One commentator put it this way, In a moment hard to fathom in the presence of such a sacred feast and ceremony, God himself stood to address his people. Now that we have grasped the way that Jesus spoke, let us consider what Jesus shouted. Listen to what he says. If anyone thirsts, Sometimes it's good to give the dramatic pause. Do you hear that? Do you hear the offer? He says, if anyone, anyone, therefore, we can conclude it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter where you have been. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. Jesus is making an offer to Anyone. He says, if anyone. We've already seen this reality displayed in the gospel earlier. We've already seen Jesus minister to a plethora of people. Remember, Jesus ministered to the religious elite. In John chapter 3, he ministers to Nicodemus. Remember that Jesus ministers to the socially outcast, the Samaritan woman. She was an adulteress. She was an outcast, yet she's out the well and Jesus ministers to her. Remember that he ministered not only to the religious elite, but also to the socially elite, the official and his son in John chapter 4. Jesus ministered to invalids. Remember the pool man, the, uh, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Later in this very gospel, he will minister to a blind man in John chapter 9. Why am I going to this length to make this point? I want everyone to hear, wherever you're at, that I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your background is. Because Jesus doesn't. He says, if anyone. The key question is this. Do you thirst? He says, if anyone thirsts. Maybe even more important, 
What or who will you drink to quench that thirst? If anyone thirsts, then what? Well, Jesus continues this shout, and he says, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This reminds us of what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Remember, after telling her to give him a drink and her confused response, Jesus answered her. Look at John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, beloved, Jesus is both the provider and the provision to quench your thirst forever. Coming to Jesus and drinking is, equivalently, is equivalent to believing, or truly believing in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who comes to Jesus will never thirst again. For Jesus will be in him by means of the Spirit such that the believer's heart, their inward seed of life, will overflow with living water, the text says. This living water is the Spirit, which is the source of life that is given to the believer by Christ such that life will flow from him inwardly. Do you realize what God has done to you in salvation? An, an outward person, namely the Holy Spirit, once you are converted, born again, he causes you to be a new creation, and then he dwells within you, and life flows from within you. What an unbelievable blessing this is. That we can say, I have been born again such that the, my experience in the Spirit is life-giving for all eternity. That is secure. Jesus said that Scripture itself has spoken this reality. He simply says, as the scripture has said. And if you're like me, you're prone to look uh, for a specific verse to say, well, where is Jesus pulling this from? But don't be dismayed by your inability to find a specific verse. Rather than quoting a specific verse, it seems that Jesus is synthesizing multiple passages to convey the biblical reality that the one who comes to him and drinks will receive living water in abundance. There are many passages that Jesus could have in mind, but let us consider just a few. Perhaps he pulls from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. And in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, the idea is that the people have come back to Jerusalem. They're supposed to rebuild things, and they are re reflecting on all that God has done. And specifically in Nehemiah 9, 20, it speaks of God's provision for the nation of Israel. And it says this, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and give them water for their thirst. 
He could have been thinking of that. Or Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, this is what it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Listen to verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Or maybe he was thinking of Isaiah 55 verse 1 where it simply says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Or maybe he was thinking of Isaiah 58 verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a water, watered garden, like a spring of water whose water does not fail. He seems to be pulling from all these passages and many more. And the point is this, the one who comes to Jesus and drinks, that is the one who comes to Jesus and believes in him, that one will be given water such that it flows from his renewed heart. All said, the shout of the Savior boils down to this. As the water drawing ceremony was occurring, and while people were superstitiously beckoning God for the provision of water, Jesus stood and Jesus declared that rather than water, which was considered to be the most essential resource for life, no, he says he is the most essential source of life. And he offers the people to come and drink. The beauty of this passage is that that offer still stands. If you've not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come, to drink, to be satisfied. You are thirsty. The question is, what will you drink? There is one drink that satisfies forever. That drink is Christ. This brings us to the second scene, the sign of salvation. This is in verse 39. And verse 39 is interesting and helpful because John's going to interrupt the narrative. He's going to interrupt the narrative. He's going to interject in verse 39 to provide more detail. And if you're reading through the Gospel of John, and as we preach through the Gospel of John, you're going to realize this is something that John does quite frequently. He interrupts a narrative in order to provide more detail on the statement that immediately precedes it. And so he does this to Jesus six, time. he, six times. He's going to do this to Caiaphas in chapter 11. He's going to do this to Judas as well in chapter 12. And so we understand that Jesus is the one speaking in verses 37 through 38, but now we understand that John interjects to speak, and this is what he says in verse 39. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John explains that the living water was the coming gift of the Holy Spirit, which would be the sign of salvation in the church era. We see this depicted in Acts chapter 2. So what John is doing is he's taking a step out of the historical narrative and he's focusing now on the theological side of the narrative. He speaks from a post-resurrection, even a post-Pentecost perspective to communicate that Jesus' words in verse 38 were looking forward to the ministries of the Holy Spirit. 
As a matter of fact, later in this gospel, Jesus will say many times and in many ways that the Holy Spirit would be sent to his disciples. We see this over and over again in the upper room discourse, specifically in John chapter 14 through 16. We have to be clear here, though. What Jesus is not saying, he is not saying that the Holy Spirit was inactive before the church age. That's not what he's communicating. Rather, what he is communicating is that the Holy Spirit would be active in new ways once the church era began in Acts chapter 2. And I simply want to just survey a few of those new ministries of the Holy Spirit. There are at least three ministries associated with the Holy Spirit in relation to believers that are specific for the church age. And each of these ministries of the Holy Spirit occurs, hear me now, each of these ministries of the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion. We are not expecting a a second subsequent blessing. When we are converted in Christ, we are giving the Spirit in full as a gracious gift from God. So I want to define these ministries of the Holy Spirit, and then I want to look at a verse that uh, identifies these definitions. So let us begin with the first ministry. The ministry, uh, the first ministry of the Holy Spirit is the baptism ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it is the work during the present church age in which the Lord Jesus Christ, in which the Lord Jesus Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, places the Christian into his body, which is the church. And this happens at the Christian's first moment of salvation by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this reality in many places in the New Testament, but maybe most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The second ministry of the Holy Spirit is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it can be defined as the act of God by the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion by which the Father guarantees, by which the Father guarantees the security of the believer in Christ until the day when the Lord Jesus returns to take his church out of the world. We see this again in multiple places, but maybe most clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, There in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The third and final new ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church era is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry can be defined as the residing of the Holy Spirit in the individual Christian beginning at the moment of conversion and never ending. We see this in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 among other places where Paul writes, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. These ministries, brothers and sisters, of the Holy Spirit began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and they continue for the church today. And we should just pause and give thanks to God for these ministries of the Holy Spirit. They're unbelievable. If God himself didn't declare it in his word, I'd say, no, it couldn't be so. But by God's grace, this is what he does to believers in Christ. 
We are indwelt by his spirit. We are sealed by his spirit. We are baptized into the church by his spirit. And when we consider these definitions in the scriptures in which they come from, the notion of the verse we just read, the notion of flowing rivers of living water out of the believer is clarified or elucidated in our minds. We now start to see all this is what is being spoken of. But we can't miss where John takes this statement. John doesn't just stop there. He continues. And John gives us the reason why the Spirit would come later. He says in verse 39, at the end simply, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We have to understand that the concept of glory in John's gospel is not separated from the cross of Christ. It's not. If we were to read Jesus' prayer in John 17, we would immediately realize that Jesus' glorification was through his cross. At the conclusion of our verse, John takes us to the cross. And he says that the Spirit was not yet given to those who believed in Jesus because Jesus had not yet been scourged. He had not yet been suspended. He had not yet been sacrificed on that Christ through which he would return to glory. When we consider that last phrase of John, chapter 7, verse 39, we're humbled. We see the the blessings, the spiritual blessings that God has given us, but we're reminded that they are given to us because Christ went to the cross to redeem us. All the spiritual blessings that are said to be had, yes, even the multifaceted ministries of the Holy Spirit, are only available because Jesus, because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. It is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is glorified through his endurance of his cross. And then he bestows the gift of the Spirit as a sign, as a seal of salvation. Brother and sister, reminding us that we too, because of him, will be glorified. We have seen the shout of the Savior. We have seen the sign of salvation. And now John transitions back into the narrative in verses 40 through 44, which is scene three, which I have called the separation of skeptics. In this scene, we have the immediate reaction to the words of Jesus shouted in verses 37 and 38. Look first at the sayings of salvation in verse 40 and in the first part of verse 41. It says, when... They heard his, these words. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. These are good sayings, amen? These are true sayings, amen? He is the prophet that Moses prophesied about back in Deuteronomy. He really is the Messiah, But just because someone says that he's the prophet, just because someone says that he's the Messiah, doesn't mean that they are saved necessarily. We've already seen in this gospel that there are people who said they believed in Jesus, yet their belief was not genuine. You remember John chapter 2, we saw that people believed in Jesus. Why? Because of the signs that he performed, yet their belief was not genuine. We saw in John chapter 6 that people saw Jesus and they believed in Jesus, because of his signs as well. Then he preaches hard. And what do they do? 
but they cease to follow him. His sayings are too difficult. In last week's passage, in chapter 7, verse 31, we saw that many people believed in him, and they asked, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And one could argue that this crowd should be lumped into the same category of false believers that we saw in John 2 and in John 6. But one could also argue that some in the crowd responded with a rhetorical question indicating that they did not expect the the Messiah to do more than Jesus has done. How are we to classify these people who are speaking these sayings of salvation? Are they genuine believers or are they not? We have well noted that we are in this section of John where The opposition to Jesus is on the rise. And this opposition may lead us to throw those who are saying these things about Jesus, that he is the prophet, that he is the Messiah, we might just jump to the conclusion, well, no, they they couldn't be true believers. But I think we should slow down. And one of the reasons that I think we should slow down is because it's good for us to realize that even while Jesus is being rejected by the masses, he is still redeeming those whom the Father has given him before the foundation of the world. Both are going on. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, true disciples are often displayed as being in the process. True disciples in John's gospel take Jesus at his word, but they don't fully understand everything that Jesus has to say. Nicodemus is depicted as someone as, who is in the process. Remember we saw Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Jesus says, you don't know these things? You're the teacher of Israel. Yet, next week in our passage, we're going to find Nicodemus again. And as a matter of fact, if we fast forward to John chapter 19, we'll find Nicodemus again. And that time he's with Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Jesus. It seems as if Nicodemus was in process. And even in the midst of this section where this this, uh, opposition is escalating, we cannot miss what happens in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, in the midst of this rising opposition against Jesus, we'll meet a blind man who refuses to reject Jesus no matter the cost. The point is this. All whom the Father has given to the Son in eternity past will be drawn to the Son and his words forever. And yes, this may include, albeit not many, some of those in the crowd in our our text saying these things. I think it's also helpful to notice this, that their response is not to the signs of Jesus, but to the words of Jesus. We saw in John 2 and John 6, they believed because, because of his signs, but listen to what it says in John chapter 7, verse 40. In our text, it says, when they heard these words, the response is to the words of Jesus. And so for us, while it might, may be difficult to identify the exactness of those in the crowd who, who may believe It was and never has been and never will be difficult for God. For he's the one who elects those to salvation. And so as we continue over the next several weeks walking down this path of escalating opposition to Jesus in chapter 7 through 12, what I don't want us to forget is that often when Jesus is most opposed, please hear me, church, that often when Jesus is most opposed is when God does his most shocking work. That was certainly true in the case of the cross. And some of us feel like here in America, greater opposition to Christ and his people is on the rise. 
I just want to remind you, God's in the business of doing great work in the face of opposition. So take heart, church. Opposition against Christ led to the glorification of Christ, and the same is true for those who are in Christ. This brings us to sayings of skepticism, continuing in verse 41. It says, But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And for the reader, this text is dripping with irony. John lets and expects the reader to understand that irony. John constantly portrays Jesus as coming from where? He, he constantly portrays Jesus coming from heaven. But we understand with the Gospels that precede John over and over and over again, the fact that he is of the line of David, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem is given to us. And so John expects the reader to understand that. Jesus is both from Bethlehem and from above. Jesus is both from the line of David and of God. What I think we should learn from these sayings of skepticism is if that you are yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, please do not, do not let your own understanding, your own presuppositions, your own inclinations of what Jesus should do, of who Jesus should be, of what you might think about him, cause you to reject him. Do not. Acknowledge God. Acknowledge God. Humble yourself before God and say, Oh Lord, that I would know you. Because what John does for us is he lays out this beautiful, glorious ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he simply says, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's all I want for every person that hears my voice to know and to hear and to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Regardless of what you think, regardless of your presuppositions, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the second person of the triune God. He is worthy of all glory and all honor and all dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. So acknowledge God, and if you are to acknowledge God, you must acknowledge Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through him. I want to take a pastoral aside. Often publicly from this pulpit, we say that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we would hopefully all affirm that. The word faith means to genuinely believe and to adamantly trust in, the, in Jesus Christ for one's salvation by God's grace. Biblical faith is the God-given ability to receive and to rest in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, as we've worked our way through John's gospel up to this point, we realize that John depicts people who believe but are not saved. That may be confusing to some. It is easy to point out that the skeptics that we just read of are unbelievers. But what about those in John's gospel who make professions of faith and are yet not saved. For John, faith is not always saving faith. And so I want to take this pastoral aside to simply survey this reality and hopefully bring about some clarity on the matter. I want to identify three kinds of faith, brothers and sisters and friends. 
There is a saving faith, but there are other kinds of faith as well, which John gives us. First, there is a faith that exists for the wrong reasons. There's a faith that exists for the wrong reasons. This is a belief that outwardly expresses acceptance of Jesus, but results in no significant change of heart, either towards God or others or even oneself. We already mentioned John 2, where we see people accept Jesus only on the basis of his signs. And in John chapter 6, we saw people accept Jesus, but why? Not only the miracles, but he provides for their material needs. Such faith is self-seeking. It's faith that is ultimately interested in oneself and not interested in the person of Christ. There's faith for the wrong reasons. But there is also faith that is not expressed in deeds. There's also a faith in John's gospel that is not expressed in in deeds. Fast forward with me, if you will, to John chapter 8. And listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. Jesus was speaking, and look what happens. He says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. What's Jesus' response? Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Fast forwarding to verse 39. These Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Fast forward to verse 41a. You are doing the works of your father. You are doing the works your father did. And then in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. We understand, brothers and sisters, and I want to be clear on this, we understand that we, that we are not saved by works. But we also understand that faith, genuine faith, God-given faith, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ works itself out or it expresses itself in deeds. Some in John's gospel verbally say they believe, yet their lives speak louder than their words. But there's a third type of faith in the gospel of John. True faith in Jesus involves both acceptance of his person and work, which then results in deeds of gratitude unto God. Biblical faith accepts Jesus as he is. They believe, it believes both his person and his work, and then it results in deeds of gratitude unto God. And we're going to see a prime example of that when we get to John chapter 9 where he heals the blind man both physically and spiritually. But the question is this, beloved, do you have faith in Jesus? Biblical faith in Jesus. God-given faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the vast majority of those here at Redeemed South Bay do. And I praise God for that. That's all to his glory, all because of his grace. But the encouragement then is what? Let your light shine, saints. Let your light shine, saints, with expressions of joyous gratitude offered to God, overwhelmingly excited about what Jesus Christ has done for you and in you. And here's the challenge. Offer those outward expressions 
of gratitude unto God, even when the skeptics oppose you. Praise God, saints. Not just here. It's easy to be together and sing God's praises here. Praise God regardless of who you're in front of. The skeptics in this verse respond to Jesus with ironic questions. Which brings us to our final verses, which I've called separation and a standstill. Verses 43 and 44 simply say this. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. The mixed reaction to Jesus is displayed in a stark line of division. We'll see this reoccurring division again amongst the people in chapter 9, verse 16, and chapter 10, verse 19. We'll see it as the opposition to Jesus rises. Although some wanted him arrested, I love this, no one put their hands on him. Why? Why? Well, because his time had not yet come. Because his time had not yet come. Although our text does not explicitly state that phrase, it is both implied and found in the immediate context of our verses. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus speaking to his brother says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He then says in verse 8, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He says in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand of him because his hour had not yet come. It says in chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. His hour will come, beloved. We'll get there at the end of chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 13, where Jesus explicitly says, my hour has come. But God's sovereignty is consistently expressed in the Gospel of John through such phrases, my hour has not come, which transitions to my hour has come. There is not one place in the Gospel of John where Jesus and God are not in complete and total control. He is sovereign over all things. His hour had not yet come, but his hour would come. And when his hour does come, brothers and sisters, through his sacrifice, we were purchased. His hour came, yes, for his own glory, through the cross he would be glorified, but his glorification results in our benefits, which then should result in our praise. Be on the right side of the dividing line, friends. We'll see this division over and over and over again. Be on the right side. Those who behold Jesus as he truly is. Those who love Jesus regardless of who they're around. Those who will follow Jesus unconditionally. We have seen the shout of salvation, the sign of salvation, and the separation of skeptics. And I tell you just like I did up front. If you haven't heard anything that I've said, hear this. Jesus is the sole provider and the only provision to quench your thirst forever. Gatorade may quench your first 
thirst for a little while. But only Jesus is able to quench your thirst forever. Or maybe put a better way. The things of this world may temporarily satisfy you. But only Jesus is able to satisfy you everlastingly. Behold him, church, and abide in him. For he abides in you. Father, bless your church. Help us to apply these realities. Help us to drink of Christ. Help us to come to him constantly and consistently. We understand that there was a moment when many of us were saved and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ where we had our very first drink, if you will. But Lord, we are always desiring to come back and to go deeper and to be overflowing even more. And so help us to continuously, not just initially, but constantly come back to you, Lord Jesus, such that our hearts will be overflowing. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who know you not. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would no longer be skeptical as some in this text were, but that they would take you at your word by your grace and the power of your spirit. Do this work, oh God, I pray. You are worthy of all of our praise. And we are satisfied in no one and nothing else except in you. Remind us of that, O oh God. Day by day, moment by moment, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.